sorry about that. Um, one quick announcement. I think there's a graphic that's going to be up on the screen uh, that has all the details. Uh, but there's, uh, is the graphic there? Oh, there it is. Cool. Uh, the Oaks Women's uh, July Hangout, Monday, July 18th. It's going to be um, at Christie's house, 7.30 p.m. And uh, they're swimming. Or, the, or you can swim. There's the option to swim. Uh, so if you need more information about that, you can talk uh, with Christy Drake, or you can talk with Kristen, um, or you can talk with someone at the Connect table. Uh, but all women are invited to this, just a, a time of women's fellowship, hanging out, and cur- mutual encouragement. Um, so just wanted to highlight that for you. I think there will be some announcements that go out or maybe have already even gone out through the app. Uh, but if you, again, if you need more details, feel free to connect with uh, one of those individuals um, to get more information about that. We're continuing on with our sermon series in uh, the book of Colossians. And today we're in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. I'm particularly excited. Uh, This is a a topic kind of in Colossians today that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I had a conversation with my six-year-old son, Daniel, this morning, just telling him how excited I was, particularly to preach this morning. And he goes, oh, uh, please don't talk long. So ho- hopefully, hopefully in my passion and enthusiasm for, for Jesus today uh, that, um, and for his word that I don't speak too long. But we are in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 23, or through 23. Normally I would have you guys stand for the reading of Scripture, uh, but this is kind of basically the whole chapter of Colossians 2, so you can remain seated today, and uh, it should be up on the screen behind me as I read here. So this is Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one 
disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings." These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul is continuing on here in Colossians today, this building argument that he's been making uh, in this letter to the, to the Colossian church. He has already contended that Christ is supreme, that Jesus is supreme. And if Jesus is supreme, then his way of relating is supreme. And so we relate to each other uh, the way in which Christ relate to us, which is through loving service towards each other. He contended, as we talked about last week, that spiritual maturity is leaning into loving service. And he highlighted, if you remember last week, that there will be some that come with these enticing arguments that tear at the fabric of our love for each other and tear at the fabric of the gospel. And they try to call into question our Christian understanding of what it means to be spiritually mature in Christ. And so in our text today, he begins to address what those arguments were for the Colossians. And I think it has implications for us. And the principal argument that was bleeding into the church uh, at that time was a form of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is the belief that spiritual enlightenment or spiritual maturity comes by throwing off the physical world, that the physical world is bad, so we throw that off, and it comes by obtaining a kind of secret spiritual knowledge. And they believed that the physical world was inherently evil, inherently uh, wrong. It was not from God. They believed that, uh, that a lesser deity was, was the deity that created the world. They did not believe that a good God created the world. They believed that a lesser deity created the world. And they believed that Jesus was not from God because, of course, he had a body, a physical body. And, but that Jesus was rather, they taught, showing us the way to God and to spiritual enlightenment. And he showed us this by casting off his body and that he gained a secret spiritual knowledge. This is what the Gnostics were uh, were teaching, and, and this is what, how they were trying to influence the church. And so Paul attacks those arguments head on. As we just read, he reminds the Colossians that Jesus was fully God in the flesh. In verse 9, he says that the fullness of God was in Christ, not just spiritually, he says bodily, in the flesh. And that Christ, he says, he says that Christ didn't throw off his body, but rather he says that Christ's body was raised from the dead. Further, he contends that the gospel, the good news that our, that our sins were paid for, 
that all of the, he talks about this, like he uses the, the, this uh, terminology of circumcision, which is a little bit foreign to our idea, but he says this, this spiritual act, right, this spiritual holiness, the spiritual thing that took place was accomplished through physical means. He says Christ took care of our debts and nailed them to the cross. It was a physical act. And he, further, he says, this gospel isn't some kind of secret knowledge, but rather, he says, it, it's open, it's visible, that Jesus put the, the, the rulers, the spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities of darkness to open shame. A spiritual is, reality was accomplished through physical means, and it's not a secret. The gospel is open. It's good news for all. And so he's attacking this this philosophy, this this cultural philosophy that's creeping in and threatening uh, the beliefs of Christians in in the Colossian church. And then he goes after the implications of this bad theology and false gospel. He goes, because what we believe matters. What we believe has implications for how we live our life. And so he goes after uh, these implications. And so I want to read uh, again for you here uh, 16, 18, and 23, because this is where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time. He says in 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. In verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on aestheticism. Aestheticism is just uh, like denying yourself, an indulgence, denying the flesh. He's saying, so don't let anybody insist on that and the worship of angels going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In 23, he says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul is addressing this religious philosophy that has permeated their culture and is, is perhaps leaking into the church And really what he's doing here is answering a question that is relevant to them and I think relevant to us still to this day. And the question is this, what kind of religious counterfeit should we watch out for? What kind of religious counterfeit should we watch out for? This is what Paul is is warning them, wanting them to guard against this counterfeit religion that is wanting to come in and uproot the gospel and replace it with something else. What does that look like? What does that look like? What kind of religious counterfeit should we watch out for? And the first thing that he highlights is that counterfeit religion judges people on human-made standards, not God's. Counterfeit religion judges people on human-made standards, not God's. He says in 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. He says in 20, If if in Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And he says in 22 that these are according to human precepts and teachings. In verse 23, he says that this is a self-made religion. So Paul goes after how counterfeit religion judges people on human-made standards as opposed to God, God's standards. Um, 
And the reason why he's attacking this is because of what he had just said, what we talked about last week. Anytime we begin to judge people on human-made standards, on our own standards, our own traditions, our own rules, our own regulations, anytime we begin to judge others for those things, it has a way of getting in the way of our ability to love and be ministers of the gospel to others. Our Christian liberty, our freedoms that are spelled out in Scripture, they're not just there, they're not there for like our own indulgence, right? The, the freedoms that Christ has given us is for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, an example is in Galatians 2. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who's the author of Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul had to publicly call out Peter for giving in to man-made rules and regulations, so in Galatians 2, um, this is what happens. This is uh, Paul writing. He says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers. Gentiles are anybody who's just not Jewish. In their minds, there was those who were Jewish, and everybody else was a Gentile. And so Peter, a Jew, was eating with Gentiles. He was kind of breaking some man-made rules by the Jewish people. They didn't want to eat with Gentiles because if you ate, then, hey, you might be tempted to then eat some of the food that the Gentiles ate, which the Jewish people considered unclean. But Peter, for the sake of the gospel, he's eating with these Gentile believers so that he can be a minister of the gospel to them. But then he says, but Paul writes, he says, but afterwards... When some friends of James came, so when these other Jewish individuals come to the area, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And so this ministry to the Gentiles that Peter has, as he succumbs to the pressures of, an out, of outside man-made rules, Paul is highlighting, that had gospel implications. It affected Peter's ability to share the gospel, to love and to relate to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, were, who happened to not be Jewish. And so Paul confronted him on that. And the New Testament, again, is clear that our freedoms in Christ, they're important to us not because we indulge, but because it puts us in close proximity to others. Of course, the Bible lays out boundaries, right? Like, that's not what we're saying here today, that we can break all rules, right? I don't say, like, well, you know, that, that we just throw out all rules. I can, I, be, I maybe murder someone or become a thief so that I have, you know, some sort of, like, relational capital, capital with murderers and thieves. Like, that's not what Paul is teaching here today, okay? The message is not that sin is okay as long as we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. That's not what he's saying. But rather, he's saying all too often we come up with human-made rules, traditions, cultural understandings, and we begin to judge others and drive wedges between ourselves and the world that needs Jesus. Let me give you a practical illustration. I grew up in Chile, South America, um, and my parents were missionaries there. And Chile is a country, a South American country, that was colonized by Spain. And so there's a lot of European influence um, in Chile. Um, 
And one of the ways that you see kind of this European influence is the way in which people uh, greet each other. And so man to man, um, you know, men will go up and they'll, they'll shake hands and they might, they might kind of embrace, give a hug. It's, very war- it's a very warm culture. They tend to um, not have the same understanding of personal space uh, that, that we uh, here in the United States do. So they'll go up, they'll shake hands, and then they'll hug, you know. And, um, and women, but women to women... And men to, to uh, women, they have a different greeting. It's, called, it's like a European greeting, and I think there's a picture I put. Okay, so keep that up on screen here for a second. So this is very intimate, right? Uh, it's where you touch cheeks. You'll touch your cheek to the other person, and you'll make a kissing sound. And then if the person is more than just, you know, an acquaintance, more than just a stranger, uh, if, if, if it was somebody that I go to church with or somebody in my family or something like that, they might even not just touch cheeks and make a kissing sound. They'll actually kind of like turn the corner of their mouth to kind of touch cheeks and also their mouth to the cheek at the same time. It's kind of hard to, you can kind of see what it looks like. Um, and so you're actually kissing, you know, a, a cheek, women to women, men to women. Um, okay, thank you for the picture. Um, now, again, for those of us in the U.S., this might feel incredibly awkward to do something like that, right? The, 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 the proximity, the intimacy, a lot of us would be like very uncomfortable, would flinch at that. But the question that I have for you is, is if I'm an American Christian trying to reach Chileans with the gospel, do I embrace that cultural norm or do I judge them for it? Am I free, free in Christ to greet them and take my American understanding of cultural norms and push that aside? Um, or do I take my American understandings of cultural norms and do I apply that to them and judge them for that? Now, you might say, I don't know where you land on that, but what's interesting is more than once I'd, I would see American Christians who would come and they would visit and they would come to our church and they would see this take place in the context of our church, and they would be absolutely opposed to this gesture. I mean, they were like, no. And they weren't just opposed to it because they were like culturally uncomfortable. They would make like a moral argument out of it. Like, no, all forms of kissing have, have a sexual connotation, right? And so it's off limits. Like, what is, what is happening here is wrong. I cannot accept their, this cultural nuance because it's not just a cultural thing. It is, you know, my standard is what God's standard is, and this is wrong. And, um, and we would, like, they would approach us and say stuff like that, and it's like, well, that's kind of weird because what do you do then in the Scripture when Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in four different letters to four different churches, like, hey, I can't be, all, be there to kiss all of you, so greet one another with a kiss, right? Or what do you do with the fact that Peter uh, says to greet one another with a kiss of love, right? So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. Um, now, in our culture, yes, yes, it would be inappropriate. If, if this morning, as everybody comes in, I start like grabbing people and hugging them and kissing them on the cheek, right? That would be weird. That would be weird. Um, but if I begin to take my personal, cultural understanding and begin to hold it up and jam it in there next to scripture, that's going to have gospel implications. It's going to diminish my ability to be able to love others 
and live out and share the gospel with them. And what Paul is saying here is that he's not willing that anything should get in the way of seeing others come to Christ. And so the danger for us, I think, is that we take cultural understandings, personal preferences, and we twist it into trying to make it a moral issue, a scriptural issue. And that always goes poorly for the sake of loving others. So to guard our hearts against this bent, to judge others with our man-made rules that we all have, um, we should be asking ourselves, how do I judge people or how do we collectively judge people um, in ways that probably aren't biblical? Like, are there there ways that I'm looking down my nose at other people? Are there ways that we collectively look down our nose at other people that actually just has no basis in Scripture at at all? Like, for example, I'm going to make all of you uncomfortable here for a moment. Have I ever said, I have no idea how a Christian could vote for, and then fill in the blank for, you know, whoever it is you don't like, right? Or look at how they are dressed, Look at how they are dressed. She went to the women's thing and I could see her belly button, right? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Or or the tattoos. Look at the tattoos. Look at the the music. Look at the music they listen to. Or, oh my goodness, look how extravagant they live. Look at the car they drive. Look at the house they bought. Or look at the food that they eat. Or look at the school that they send their kids to. Or look at the way that they parent their kids. Or look at the friends that they have. Or look at the songs their church sings, right? We could keep, we could keep on going on and on about all of the petty, stupid rules that we come up with and judge others. There is a bent in our heart to want to look down on others and judge them in a way that runs counter to the gospel. And we need to be vigilant when we begin to experience those sentiments of of judgment well up inside of us, right? I mean, anytime, anytime that you begin to feel yourself beginning to judge others, we should probably just be vigilant and just ask ourselves an honest question, like, am I honestly, am I doing that out of a sense of like, you know, this is what the Bible says, and I care for them and want to see them thrive in Christ? Or am I actually doing that from a place of self-righteousness, wanting to look down on them, feel good about myself? So that's what counterfeit religion does. Secondly, counterfeit religion makes regulations and rules the head, not Christ. Counterfeit religion makes rules and regulations the head and not Christ. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on aestheticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So he's saying counterfeit religion doesn't just displace your love towards others. Counterfeit religion displaces your love for God. Christ is the head of the church, not human traditions and rules. We are knit together, held together in Christ, not in 
rules and regulations. And, and to my, and, and we get this, we conflate this, we get this so backwards. I do this. Um, to my great lament, one of the things that I see in myself and in so many other uh, Christians is that I'm quick to proclaim, you know, quote unquote, Christian rules and regulations as though, um, as though that is what my high calling is. That what the world really needs is to hear from Eric Russell about, you know, how I'm doing it right and they're doing it wrong. So I'll get on Facebook and be like, oh my goodness, the world is just going down. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Here's what Christians do. Here's what we believe, right? Let's look down our noses at them. And we do that. Um, I I do this way too much. Uh, And then I saw this this comedic bit uh, by uh, comedian Bo Burnham. And um, he had this quote and it stung me. Like, you watch it, it's funny. I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. And then I'm like, ouch. And that's me, right? I do that. And so Bo Burnham, I'll censor it for you. Uh, But Bo Burnham says this. Uh, Here's a question for you guys. This is a quote. Is it necessary, is it necessary that every single person on this planet expresses every single opinion they have on every single thing that occurs all of the time. Is that necessary? Or to ask it a slightly different way, can anybody shut up? Can anyone, can any single one, can any one shut up about anything, about any single thing, you know, for like an hour? Is that possible? And I'm like, ouch, right? Like I see that as my Christian duty. Let the world know, you know, my opinions on everything as though that is what they need and not Jesus. And I I think as Christians, we've bought into this myth that our great high calling is to let everyone know every single opinion we have about every single thing that happens all of the time. As though what people need to know is that we are a people that cling to goodness instead of God. What if instead we embodied this idea of clinging to the head to the head, Christ, the cornerstone of our faith that we just sung about, Jesus, and expressing our love for him, our love for each other, our love for unbelievers, for the world. Blas Pascal argued that for faith to take root in a society, that it didn't hinge on an argument that had the weight of morality, but it was on the weight of beauty. And he said that Christians living in this way would paint a vision for the world where people on the outside would wish it was true, would see this Christian perspective that what they would hear from us, what they would see in us, that they would be like, man, I wish, like that is so beautiful, I wish it was true. And then we would show them it is true. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is not that you get good. It's that you get God. Again, we have a natural bent in our hearts to want to flip that. Because if you're like me, you're probably finding yourself sitting there, right? Your heart resistant to this saying, but we should be known for our good works. We should be known for good works. And you're not wrong. We should. That's true. But what Paul is highlighting is that Good works are not the foundation of faith. Christ is. And if we are going to order things rightly, 
we should be quick to proclaim a gracious Savior before we're spewing about all of Christian works and ethics. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but the world already knows that. The world already understands this, these gospel implications, and so we need to stress you know, obedience, especially in our society, right? Our, our society is a mess. We need, to, we need to stress this obedience and these good works as an important part of faith, right? That's, that should be a predominant thing that we stress in broader culture. And I would say, at what cost? Um, the uh, Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University did a poll uh, of thousands of self-identified Christians, and they asked them the question, to, again, self-identified Christians, they asked them the question, how does someone get to heaven after they die? How does someone get to heaven after they die? 48% of self-proclaimed Christians selected this as their answer. A person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. It's basically half. Only 33% affirmed and selected the statement, you go to heaven only because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. One in three. In other words, the American church has done a massive disservice in messaging, not only to the outside world, but to our own people. Pastors, Christians, leaders are doing a disservice And there's people who believe that good works are the cornerstone of salvation and not Christ. If self-identified Christians don't understand that, then we are proclaiming the wrong message. The world is getting the wrong messaging from us. Anytime we displace the gospel, anytime we displace the gospel with an emphasis on holy living, we have begun to steer towards a counterfeit religion. The bedrock, the cornerstone, the head of our faith is Jesus and his good works for us. I was talking with a friend this week in my office and the conversation got brought up as to, you know, why I would be a Christian as opposed to any other uh, world religion. And my answer to that question was that apart from the work, apart from the, the work and the drawing of the Holy Spirit, because I believe that that's true, that the Spirit draws us, that it's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. But apart from that, that when I look at Christianity and compare it to any other religion in the world, that uh, Christianity is basically the only religion where I have any hope at all. Um, Because all other religions have some kind of like merit-based thing that they're attaching to. Right? All other religions believe that, like, well, hey, if you want to, uh, you know, on the other side of life, whatever that, however they define that, on the other side of life, if you want to um, be with God or uh, if you want to be in heaven or, how, again, however they define that, there's always some kind of merit that's attached to it. You have to do this. You have to, you have to be a good person. And if you're not a good person, if you're bad, then there's punishment waiting for you, right? That's pretty common in a lot of different uh, relationships. The big distinction between Christianity is that it's all based on the grace of Jesus, not on what you earn, but on what Jesus has earned for you. And that, quite honestly, is my only hope. 
I would be doomed under the terms of any other religion because I know what I've done and I know who I am. And I know that even when I try to do quote unquote good things, that oftentimes my motivation, it's right. Like, oh, I'm doing this good thing, but I'm doing it because I want them to think well of me. There's pride that's attached to it or a sense of duty that's attached to it or a sense of I want people to think really, really highly of me when I'm doing it. My only hope for salvation is the grace of Jesus. And that grace is offensive. And Paul is kind of highlighting that indirectly here. Right? This is what these Christians, these Colossian Christians are proclaiming that it's in Jesus and Jesus alone, that it's by his grace. And there's people, the Gnostics, that are coming in and going, are you crazy? What? No, that's offensive. It's just for free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. That doesn't even make sense. That's, that's, that's what they're arguing for. And, and by the way, this gospel of grace is going to be abrasive, I think, moving forward in our culture. It's going to be abrasive. I saw this post uh, recently. Um, as a pastor, I like to like subscribe to these Facebook groups, like a spy, you know, like I subscribe to all these Facebook groups, you know, like, uh, you know, exvangelicals or, you know, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'm an evangelical, and, you know, get in there. And, and I just, because I want to see like, I want to see like what they think and what they're feeling and, and understand them a little bit more. And so I saw this post and I was like, wow, this person understands the gospel and they find it offensive. That's really fascinating to me. And they said this. They said, before the apostle Paul converted to Christianity, he had murdered Christians. That's true. And they went on, they said, imagine those Christians that Paul helped to kill rejoicing as he enters heaven as their brother. That's how the gospel works, is what they said. And then they said, what an effed up religion. I understand their sentiment on one hand. You know, the idea that abusers, that murderers, that bad people would be granted forgiveness. This offends our cultural sensibilities of justice. And so if, you, if you're here today and you land in a place where the, a gospel of grace is offensive, on one hand, I sympathize with you. I do. But on the other hand, if the gospel of grace is the only way I'm making it, man. It's the only way that you're going to make it. Make no mistake, that is the way that the gospel works. The thing that Christians should be emphasizing is that Jesus paid it all, period. There's nothing else left that you have to earn. Lastly, counterfeit religion has the appearance of wisdom, but it's of no value to spiritual maturity. Counterfeit religion has the appearance of wisdom, but it's of no value to spiritual maturity. He says in verse 23, these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, oh, you want to live a holy life? You want righteousness? You want holiness? You want to live a holy life? You think that putting all of these extra rules and regulations in place, that this is going to help you become righteous? That this is going to help you overcome your sins? You think that the victory of sin comes through trying harder? Eh, no, it's of no value. That's what Paul is saying. 
because Paul understands what theologians um, have called the mortification of the flesh. It's the doctrine of the mortification of the flesh. In other words, how do we kill sin? How do we mortify and kill the evil that's in us? This past week, I listened to this uh, podcast um, where um, Pastor Tim Keller was interviewed, and he gave kind of some insight and some details as to how he has sustained such a long walk in faithfulness to Jesus. Um, And he brought up this idea of the mortification of the flesh, and I perked up listening to it um, because, again, from all appearances, um, Tim Keller appears to have lived a life where he has this pattern of throwing off sin and putting on holiness. And so I wanted to listen to his answer on how did he accomplish that? How did that happen? And so I'll summarize his answer. Basically, he said this, Am I stirring my affections for Christ so that I want him more than I want anything else? That's what, he's, that's what he was saying. It's like, am I stirring my affections for Jesus so that he is more beautiful than the sin that entices me? See, the only way that you kill your sin is, is not because you want righteousness, it's because you want Jesus. See, what we often do is we want righteousness, but we want to bypass Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, if you want righteousness, if you want holiness, you have to go to me through me. Right? The way to righteousness is by going through Jesus. And a lot of times we just want to bypass that. Nope, I'm going to bypass Jesus, my affections for him. I'm just going to go to righteousness directly. And when that happens, if I'm in love with the idea of being well thought of, that people would think that I'm a good person, that I'm a righteous person, if I, if I fall in love with that idea, then I will get comfortable with this idea of putting on the righteous exterior that can fool all of you into thinking, that I'm the real deal, that I'm not counterfeit, right? Because that's what a counterfeit is. It looks from the exterior like the real thing. And that when we pursue just righteousness apart from Christ, that's what happens. We look on the exterior like it's real, but it's, but it's fake. I had a, um, a Christian professor in college say that uh, he began to experience victory over sin only when he had gotten to this point where he was so frustrated with his own ability to overcome sin, he said that I just eventually, I just gave up, stopped trying to sin. And I was like, what? Right, I remember being this, this, this young man and I was like, you, stop, you stopped trying to stop sinning? Like, what did you do instead? He's like, well, instead, I began to focus on trying to love and cultivate an affection for Jesus more. So he said, I, I began to spend spend less time worrying about my sin, and I began to worry more about praying, being in the scripture so I could, could know Jesus. I began to try to walk in communion and in, in accountability with other Christians. And he said that when he began to do that, he began to suddenly experience victory over sin that had plagued him for years. He actually began to, to uh, step into accountability with other, conf- other Christians and confess his sin to them. And it was when he began to care less about this idea of being holy and more about this idea of being with Jesus that he actually began to experience inner holiness. And that is the calling for us as well, church. Why are we here? Are we trying to cultivate an outer holiness where we just like impress each other? Is that, is that why you're here? Is that why I'm here? Just so we can impress each other with our exterior? That's counterfeit religion. 
Counterfeit products like are all over the place, right? You can get counterfeit shoes, you can get counterfeit purses, you can get counterfeit clothing, you can even get counterfeit guitars. I, uh, some people collect Pokemon cards or, you know, other, collect other, you know, antiques or whatever. One of the things that I collect is I will buy a guitar and then I'll try to, you know, fix it up or do something to it, market it and sell it and make, make a little profit, right? That's, that's my, the adult version of Pokemon cards for me, right? I buy, buy a guitar, sell it. And there are a lot of fake guitars, counterfeit guitars. From the outside, they, fo- they can fool people, right? Oh, it says Gibson on the headstock. It says Fender. Must be, must be that brand, right? Must be worth a lot of money. How do, you, how do you know when you have a guitar that looks on the outside like it's the real deal? How do you know if it's a counterfeit or not? I'll tell you how you know. You look on the inside of it. You pull the guitar apart. You take the electric guitar and you open it up and you look at all the electronics, all the switches, everything that's inside of the guitar. You have the ability to look inside and you can, set, you can know, oh, that right there, that's what the real deal looks like on the inside. The exterior might have fooled me, but when I get to the inside of the guitar, now I know if it's a counterfeit, if it's a real deal or, or not. And that is what is happening here today. God is showing us what he really wants from us. What he really wants from us. He doesn't want a counterfeit religion where it's all about the exterior, all about the aestheticism, all about the rules, all about the regulations, all about making sure everyone thinks you're so good. That is not what God wants. He says, no, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God can tell the counterfeit. And he's saying, stop caring what your outside looks like and submit to Christ. Give your affections to him. Cultivate your love for Christ. Be in the scriptures, be in prayer, be in community, be in accountability. Cultivate that, your affection for Jesus, and not cultivating that everybody would think that you're so amazing. Do I care more? Do you care more about impressing everyone here? Or are we here as a church? Are we here because we want to experience a real relationship with a real Savior? My hope is that we, as a church, collectively run from counterfeit religion, that when we find it in our midst, that we destroy it, that we kill it, that we stamp it out in our own hearts, and that we cling to Christ the head. It's in Christ alone. We're transitioning to our time of communion, and communion is a time for us to remember that Christ came bodily in the flesh. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And he offers us not our own works. He offers us his own body, his work for us. And so when we come forward to take communion, we're, we're not coming forward to proclaim our good works. We're coming forward to proclaim Christ's work for us. And we are, we're coming empty-handed, by the way, right? That's, we come to communion, we come to the table empty-handed. Lord, I have nothing to offer you. But we walk away with Christ symbolically in us. We came with nothing, but we walk away with Christ in us. And it's us saying, Jesus, I need your body. I need your blood. I need your work, not my own. And um, 
So if you're a believer, you're invited to participate. You do not have to be a member of this church to participate in um, communion. You just have to be someone who professes Jesus as Lord. If you are a believer, rather than coming forward and, and participating in com- communion, which uh, would not be a reality that's true for you, I would encourage you to, to watch today, to, to look at this weekly rhythm that we do. It's an opportunity for you to see one of the ways in which we, the church, remind ourselves weekly um, that it's not about us, it's not about our works, that it's about Jesus. And um, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would love the opportunity uh, to chat more with you uh, if, if you'd like to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. Um, I confess that so often I want to cling to my own rules, my own regulations. I want to judge others so that I can feel good about myself. I want to manufacture holiness. And um, I pray that that part of of me, that that part of us, that you would crucify that. You have crucified it. You nailed it to the cross. And instead, I pray that we would cling to you, our cornerstone, the head of our faith, and um, that we would become focused on knowing you. That would be the, the primary thing. That would be the primary thing that we want to work and do and proclaim our love for you, our affection for you. I pray that that is what our church would be known for. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who gave us his righteousness, even though we come empty-handed. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.